Well, one of the questions that I know I ask all the time is why, why does a good God, a kind God, a loving God, a God that is um, so in love with his own kids, why does he allow his kids, those whom he loves so deeply, so dearly, to suffer and to struggle and to go through tribulation? I mean, who hasn't wrestled with that before? You know, I get it. Like, okay, the, the people that hate you, God, your enemies, the people that curse your name, sure, I get it, you know, letting, letting them suffer. But, but the people that have chosen you, the people that love you, why would you allow suffering into your life? And if you've never wrestled with that question, I don't mean this in a, in a demeaning way, but it's probably likely that you haven't suffered a lot or perhaps that you haven't seen someone that loves Jesus suffer deeply. And we have to ask these questions. We're meant to ask these questions. Why, God? Why do you allow your kids to suffer, to go through the heat of, of life. And I think this text really forces us to interact with this question. Today we're going to see God do what God does so well. He repurposes the tragedy that we produce as sinful fallen creatures. He repurposes the trage- tragedy and uses it to bring about his victory. This is what God does all throughout the Bible. It's what he did at the cross. The tragedy of man's most evil moment where they put the son of God himself on the cross became the moment of victory where God himself won. Isn't that incredible? God is a God who repurposes. He takes our worst and he creates his best. You know, trying to answer that question, why does God allow his believers to suffer, I I found it helpful. I I remember hearing John Piper one time give an example of the difference between a forest fire and a refiner's fire. We know a lot about forest fires right now, don't we? Just a few years ago, our own community, right, Talent, Phoenix was just completely uh, leveled by forest fires. Just this year, we saw Lahaina and and Hawaii just completely devastated by fire. So we understand um, how, how terrible fire is. And we know that fires destroy mindlessly. They destroy indiscriminately. But the refiner's fire is a very different thing. Same heat. In fact, you could even say even a, maybe even a hotter heat. The refiner's fire doesn't destroy uh, mindlessly. Rather, the, fi- the, the, father's, or the, the refiner's fire is, is controlled by a mind. It's fire that's used. It's used to shape and to refine and to purify intentionally. It's the same heat, it's the same fire, but it's actually used to forge something. It's used to purify something, to shape something. So I always found it helpful to think that, that God is not just allowing, God is not just allowing heat like a forest fire to destroy. When it comes to his kids, when it comes to his people, he is actually refining and creating something with that heat. And I think that's exactly what we see here this morning in our text. Nebuchadnezzar is, as you'll see, going to throw a fit of rage. He's going to throw a fit of rage and he's going to attempt to burn mindlessly. He's going to attempt to destroy anything that would stand in his way. And what we're going to see is that God, like a master craftsman, will take his bloodthirsty, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's bloodthirsty flames and, and produce a product with them in which we will see the face of Christ, literally. It's a beautiful picture that we see today. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we are going to peer into the furnace this morning. And as we peer into the furnace, what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus. 
And this is what I think furnaces do in our lives. Furnaces give us the ability to see the fourth person in the fire, to see that we're not alone. This is a passage that was meant to inspire all believers of all time, from the exile to now, who we have so much in common with, to always continue to remember that God does not waste fire. He uses it like a refiner, like a master craftsman. And you've heard this analogy perhaps before, but like a master craftsman that purifies gold so pure that after he's done, he could see his own reflection in the gold. That's what Jesus does through the furnaces of our lives. He sees his own image created in us, brought about in us. Reminds me of, of, of Lord of the Rings. The moment they, they throw the ring in the fire and, and, and Gandalf says there are just certain things that are only expire, exposed by the flames of fire. There are certain things in you that are only seen and only drawn out when you go through the fire. So that's kind of what we're going to see this morning. We're going to take note, and we'll get there, and eventually I'll tell you when we get there, but we're going to see five reasons that God allows heat in your life. My hope and my prayer would be that this is encouraging for you today if you are struggling or if someone that you know is struggling to see that there's purpose and design and intention behind this. So you can fill those out when we get there. Let me get you back into the text. I know some of you are just joining us for the first time this morning, and maybe you haven't been tracking along with Daniel, and, and some of you, like me, you know, forget, you forget what you have for breakfast. So let me just try to get you back into the narrative a little bit. It's 600 B.C. B.C. means 600 years before the time that Jesus came and walked the earth. Daniel took place 600 years before Christ, and Babylon rules the world. Literally, Babylon is the one world ruling empire and King Nebuchadnezzar is at the helm. He is uh, one of the most powerful men who has ever lived at this particular time. He's, his rise to power was meteoric. It was fast. It was quick. He's a young man who's got seemingly something to prove and a lot of power to do whatever he wants to do. If you remember from chapter two, he is the head of gold and the statue that is representing all of man's human authority. So he has the purest, the most undiluted level and measure of human authority. Now, ironically, God has had to take Israel out of their homeland and put them in Babylon. He had to take them out of, the, out of their home and put them in the world in order to get the world out of them. Isn't that funny? You'd think it'd be the complete opposite, right? You'd think if God's going to get the worldliness out of his people, he's got to take them out of the world. But that's not actually how God thinks, is it? What does he do? He sends us into the world, and it's in the world that he removes our worldliness, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. So, so God needed to get Babylon, so to speak. He needed to get Babylon out of Israel. So he sent Israel into Babylon. And now this is not, this is not uh, uh, punitive. This is disciplinary. God is, is trying to train up his kids. He's trying to work something out of them. He's not trying to take something out of them. He's trying to work something out of them. And that something is idolatry. They've been putting false gods, little g gods, on the throne, in the temple, constantly. Syncretizing is the theological term. Adding other gods into their, their, their worship of Yahweh. Adding them in together for years and years and years. And finally, God has said, I have to train up my kid, Israel. So he raises up Babylon under the, the power of Nebuchadnezzar and he exiles Babylon wave in three sequential waves. And what Daniel is, is it's the story of the first wave of Jews that were ripped out of their homeland and taken into Babylon. And it becomes for us a very helpful resource for many reasons, one of which is it teaches us what it looks like to live in a world where we don't belong to be strangers and pilgrims as exiles in a land. And for it's, it's served Christians for thousands of years as a, a guidebook in many ways of what it looks like to interface with a culture that does not worship our God. 
And so we're, we're going to see a lot of that. Now, there's been different threads that have been developing through this book, through uh, chapters one through three so far. We've seen again and again God's desire to protect his people in the midst of persecution and tribulation. We saw that in, in how God... Um, you know, gave Daniel this supernatural ability to not eat the king's foods and still be super sharp and, and, and have everything he needed. We, we'll see this today. We'll see this again in, in, I believe it's chapter six, when when God delivers Daniel out of the lion's den. So we've seen this theme of God protecting his people. We've seen this theme, listen, of God introducing himself to King Nebuchadnezzar, slowly but surely. Have you noticed that? Every week, God is knocking on the door of Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, Here's a little bit more about me. And this morning, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's vision of Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, the one true God, the God of gods, is going to become more developed. And we'll see that continue to work. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought that because he conquered Israel, then the God of the Israelites is of no significance to him, because that's how it works in a polytheistic world. You want to call on the God who's got the most power. And clearly, Israel's God doesn't have the most power, so Nebuchadnezzar thinks. So he's written off the God. He doesn't know, even know or care about the God of the Jews. But Daniel and his, and his friends have continually been bringing Yahweh to the forefront of Nebuchadnezzar's mind. We'll see that continue to develop. We've also seen uh, it develop through this book this, um, this thread of God's total sovereignty over all of humanity. That God holds all the strings, God holds all the cards, and that God's kingdom is and will break in and undermine and replace the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of this world. Praise God. Good news. So those are the themes we've been seeing develop. Now, let's get back into this chapter here because uh, Pastor Ryan last week did a fantastic job taking us through the first half of the book. Now, it's been 15 years from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Okay, chapter 2 is where Daniel interpreted, interpreted the vision for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's been 15 years. So if Daniel was probably around 18 when he interpreted that vision, now he's in his mid-30s. So he's not a young boy anymore. He's grown up and he's quite a statesman. But this story actually isn't about Daniel. It's about his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At least those were the names that were given to them. So these young men were statesmen. They were chosen um, by Daniel, selected to have positions of authority in the region of Babylon, and they've been doing so for about 15 years. And apparently, they really were uh, not on the best side of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans were some of the sort of magicians and scholars and powerful people within the Babylonian kingdom, and we'll see that develop in the story. So for the last 15 years, what has Nebuchadnezzar been doing? He's been building his empire. He's been building his empire. How? Well, through military, uh, you know, excursions, through, through um, political moves. And, and what happens, now this is, this is just an obvious thing, what happens when you take lots and lots of mass and you try to put something all together? Like, let's say you just pour a giant slab of concrete. What, ha what, what happens if you don't put anything inside of it? It cracks. Okay, this is a basic principle. So Nebuchadnezzar's building, just, he's just making his, king, his kingdom and his empire larger and larger and larger, expanding the borders, expanding his power. And what he realizes is like, this thing is only as good as it is unified around one singular ideology. So he, he seeks to put some rebar, some trellis into the formation of his kingdom. And the way that he's going to do that is through something I'm going to call Babylon Con. You know, like Babylon Conference. 
It's very much like what Apple does. And I've never been to Apple's you know, conference where they roll out the new iPhone 65B plus you know, with 16 cameras. I'm actually wondering how many more cameras they're going to keep adding. I think at one point it'll just be all cameras. So if you, if, if you were to go to that, here's what you would find. So um, the, the guy that owns Apple, what's his name? Anybody? I forgot. Who is it? Tim Cook. Tim Cook. OK. Thank you, Joel. Um, that was I didn't write that down. So Tim Cook, right? Tim Cook, he, he wants to get people excited about Apple products. So he pulls on some basic human things. He takes people and he whisks them away uh, to a, a retreat center of some sort. And then the first thing you do is you always get a swag bag, right? Stuff we all get. You get a free bag with a free T-shirt. There's a bunch of people around. There's, there's a crowd. Um, you, you probably get like a free, you know, maybe a free iPad or something. There's good food. There's good music. There's important people. Uh, all the most important people are there. And then, and then he files you uh, into this, this big conference where, where he himself stands on the stage and rolls out the new product. And what's the purpose of all this? It's to swear allegiance to Apple products and to pre-order the new iPhone. Right? And all you got to do is just sign, yeah, I'm all about Apple. Yep, you can have my information. Sure, send it to China. Who cares? Okay, so, <laughs> so this is exactly what Babylon, or this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here with, with Babylon Khan. He's trying to ensure that his kingdom and all of the mass that he has kind of cultivated is going to hold together. And in order to do that, he sweeps all of his constituents, all of his most important people, out into the plain of Dura, which is outside of Babylon, uh, for a conference, essentially. And there's lots of music with all kinds of diversity and different instruments. And there's probably really good food. And it's probably a really good experience. And everyone probably gets a little baggy with a, with a, a shirt that has Nebuchadnezzar's face on it, you know. And there's, there's a selfie stage and everything, right? In all seriousness, he, he marches them out to the plain of Dura and, the, and then he un unveils what he, he's been working on. And it's this massive golden statue, 90 feet by nine feet wide. Kind of similar almost to like a totem pole, but this just kind of impressive tall gold statue or image. What is, what is he doing here? Why is he doing this? The, the reason he's doing this is he's trying to unify his nation around a single deity. Now hear me, he's not arguing for monotheism, meaning there's only one God. He doesn't care if you worship whatever God you want to worship. You just have to at least worship this God. Are you with me? It's exactly what Rome did, by the way, in the Roman Empire. It was called the emperor cult. Uh, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Persians, they were all polytheists. They all worshiped lots of gods. But what Caesar did in the Roman Empire is he said, you can worship any god you want, but you have to say the following phrase. Caesar is Lord. Because they literally thought they were gods. And the Christians, of course, said, not going to do that. They would say, instead of Kaiser Curios, they would say what? Christus Curios, Christ is Lord. And that's largely why they were thrown into the, the arenas and, and, uh, and persecuted so heavily in the first century. So it's the same idea. So what Babylon here is doing, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he's, he's looking for a binding agent, something that will kind of be, a, I swear, allegiance. He's looking for virtue signaling, is what to use a term we're maybe more familiar with. He's looking for, for a way for people in his, his, his kingdom to show that they're on board. And frankly, his people have no problem bowing down to this thing because they're all polytheists. They're, they're actually also what you would call syncretists, meaning they're okay with there being overlap between their different gods. So Nebuchadnezzar is pretty smart. 
He's playing on some basic human instincts. He knows if I have really good music and lots of powerful people and there's a lot of groupthink happening and I take them out to this plane where there's this impressive thing happening, they're going to get so caught up in the moment, so excited about Babylon, utopia, that they're going to just do whatever I ask them to do. And they're going to bow down and they're going to worship. But what he wasn't expecting was that there were some people there that actually were not polytheists. Some people there that actually had character and had faith in a God that Nebuchadnezzar has not yet fully acknowledged. Now, why was it such a big deal? Now, I'm just reviewing here. Why was it such a big deal last week that, that, that these three would not bow down to the image? Well, it's very obvious. The second commandment in, in the Old Testament is what? You shall not have any idols, shall not bow down to anything before me. So this was not even a question for these guys. I mean, what got them into the exile in the first place? was idolatry. So they're not even, they're not even considering it. And, and, and by the way, they weren't, you know, they weren't out in public making a big deal out of this. They weren't posting on social media trying to cause problems. Like these guys actually were just keeping to themselves with their, uh, their religious, what they thought was religious liberty at the moment. And what we learned last week, the Chaldeans put the spotlight on them. Remember, they're like, hey, these guys aren't bowing down to you. In fact, they despise you, was the way that they basically told Nebuchadnezzar about it. So now they're in the limelight. And now, uh, it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar has kind of put in a tight position. He doesn't want these guys. Uh, he doesn't want to kill these guys. He, 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 they're valuable to him. They're assets in his, in his kind of economy. He wants to continue to use them. But he, he has to do something. So let's pick up the, the story here in verse 19. Uh, by the way, just one more quick. So, so Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, I'm going to give you another chance. When, when the music plays or whatever, you're going you're gonna to bow. And the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, we don't even need a second chance. We're good. They're resolved, right? And here's where we punch in in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And just stop right there for a moment. King Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Why is he furious? First of all, I think he's embarrassed. I think he's completely stunned that he just flexed hard on these guys and they don't care. They're not in any way concerned for his power. You know, when people think they have power and money that can buy anything and then they realize they can't buy something, it infuriates them. I think there's a lesson for us to learn here, by the way, about watching for our own inflated furnaces. What I mean by that is... In, is Overinflated reactions to situations. When you react in a way that's just ridiculous, over the top, tune into that. There's a reason. Like, sift your emotions. Nebuchadnezzar is reacting in a, in a furious way. Why? Because the reason is, is it's exposing his worldview. Nebuchadnezzar thinks like this. He thinks power equals everything I want. And because I have all power, I should get everything I want. Nebuchadnezzar thinks power will make people do whatever I want. Is that true? Clearly not. See, step back from this for a moment. What you see here is that these three guys are not just, they're, just, they're not just denying him, they're undoing, they're unraveling his worldview before him. In his worldview, he thinks, if I have enough power, I can make humans get along and do what I want them to do and we'll create a utopian society. And these three guys go, no. So cancel culture doesn't work very well here, Right? It's, it's not working for these guys. So, so he's infuriated and he responds in this kind of intense way. Now, 
Um, he's realizing that his Babylon conference is not going to accomplish what he was hoping it would accomplish. You know, just, I got to point something out really quick here. I don't want to take too much time on this, but it's worth noting, and Pastor Ryan pointed this out last week too, it's worth noting the place that this takes place is very significant. The plain of Dura, which is the same place that what? The Tower of Babel also was constructed on. And there's a biblical thread there that we don't have time to really double click on, but I want you to consider it this week. There's a, bib- there's a biblical thread there of man's best attempt to, concre- to, to concrete a one world society. Original Babylon did it, which was the foundation uh, ethnically of Neo-Babylon. And now here we have Nebuchadnezzar again on the plain of Dura doing his best to bring all of humanity back together again. And what's the similarity here between the Babylon we're going to see in the future is that God's people, God's remnant are always persecuted for that. Let me read a quote for for you really quickly from uh, one commentator. He says, in the coming tribulation, a Gentile ruler will demand for himself the worship that belongs to God. You can see Revelation 13 for that. Any who refuse to acknowledge his right to receive worship shall be killed. Revelation 13, 15. Assuming political and religious power, he will oppress Israel. Most of the people in the world, including many in Israel, will submit to and worship him, but a small remnant in Israel, like the three in Daniel's day, will refuse. Many who will not worship the Antichrist will be severely punished. Some will be martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, but a few will be delivered from those persecutions by the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. Again, you can read Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 13, Zechariah 13. But what I'm trying to point out here is that there is a cyclical thing that happens here. It happened in Babel, it's happening again here, and it's going to happen again in the end. And that is that man is going to do his best attempt to bring all of humanity together. But at the end of the day, it's going to crumble. At the end of the day, it's going to fail. Now, the reason that matters and the reason that that's good news is because what we see here in the plain of Dura is actually a foreshadow of the true kingdom, the greater kingdom that will come. And one day, get this, one day we will have all people together, united across every, uh, every socioeconomic level, across every ethnicity, will come together, and the binding agent of that will not be some kind of allegiance to a golden pole. It will be love and thankfulness and worship for the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth, who is in the midst of his future eternal congregation. There is a greater kingdom coming that Babylon cannot even begin to try to pretend to be. We have a greater king who's not a, a, a tyrannical, a bloodthirsty tyrant who, who forces people to, to worship him through power. Rather, he stepped into the story himself, shed his own blood to die for his people. And in the end, in Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem where we will forever thank and worship that, that Christ, not being forced to worship some idol. So this moment, this scene, this Babylon con, it should perk our ears And it should ignite our hearts to consider the future fulfillment of the one true world that is coming. And only Jesus is going to bring it about. Amen? All right. Just got to get that out real quick. Verse 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their, note this, cloaks, tunics, hats, and their other garments. Now, just pause for a minute. Minute, As a Bible student, when something seems kind of like random, it's probably because it's random. 
Okay, like when, when something, when details like that are given, it's, it's not just for no reason. The author's trying to communicate something to you as the reader, and, and he seems to be very concerned with the clothing that's worn by these guys when they're thrown in. So just note that. Uh, they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace, verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, I also think there's meant to be an authorial irony here in this passage that the, the, the furnace that was intended to destroy the three actually ended up destroying their enemies. Do you see that? Now, why do I think that's significant? Uh, again, I don't have time to get into this, so study it on your own. But write down Matthew chapter 13, verse 36 through 43. It's so interesting. I learned this week that Jesus uses the allu- or alludes to and uses this language of the fiery furnace in a particular moment where he's interacting with the disciples. He gives a parable of the wheat and the tares. And his disciples come to him and they say, tell for us, explain to us what the, the parable of the wheat and the tares is. And he says that the, the, the wheat are God's people, the tares are those who are sown among them, and at the end of all things, the tares will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, Jesus specifically uses that language. Why? Because Jesus is saying the script will be flipped. Your enemies think they're throwing you into the furnace, but in reality, it is your enemies that will go into the furnace. Jesus is trying to pick up that idea. So it's a a New Testament biblical illusion. It's worth noting, but we don't have time to look deeper at it. Verse 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Notice, they fell bound into the fiery furnace. Why did they fall bound? Probably because their feet and their hands are bound. So they fall into the furnace. So so that means that they can't walk is kind of the illusion there. Verse 24, then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, (laughs) he's like, am I taking crazy pills? We threw three people in there, right? Can someone verify? Can I get a fact check, please? We threw three guys in there, right? He answered and said, but I see four men. And and notice what he notes. Again, this this is important details that the author's trying to get you to see. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar there using his, his, uh, the only lexicon that he has to, to try to describe this fourth figure who was apparently man-like, human-like, but very impressive. 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of, sh- of the burning, bur- uh, burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out in the fire. And the satraps and the prefects, now notice all the detail of who is seeing this. There's a lot of people seeing this. Satraps, prefects, governors, kings, counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads, note this, was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Okay, here's where we're going to get into our outline. I want you to see five reasons that God allows heat. 
And we're going to see those through five things that the author wanted us to draw attention to. Five things in this narrative that we're supposed to draw out as good readers, as good students of this text. So the first thing I think we're meant to see here, and this, don't write this down. This is just the thing. Uh, I'll tell you when it's time to write it down. Uh, the first thing I want you to see, the author wants you to see, is their total preservation. Okay, we're supposed to see their total preservation, even down to the smell of the smoke and the clothes on their body. Clearly, the author is trying to communicate to us, hey, I want you to see that these guys weren't just saved, but a little singed, right? These guys were completely saved, totally saved. I love backpacking, I love camping, and, and when you go snow camping, it's one of my favorite things to do, you, you're freezing, and you want to get as close to the fire as you possibly can, but there's a downside to that, you know? You get holes in your down jacket, you burn through your socks, your boots melt, and it's like this wrestling match, how close do I want to get? And then you come home and your whole closet smells like smoke, right? Even if you wash your clothes, it still smells like smoke. So what's my point? The reality is these guys went into a furnace that was seven times hotter than it needed to be to kill a human being, and they came out and they don't even smell like smoke, okay? The point that we're supposed to gather here is that God is not just saved partially. God saves totally. God saves completely. Now, if you're thinking logically, you should go, well, does that mean that I don't ever have to suffer? Turn with me really quick to Luke chapter 21. Jesus says a very similar thing. Luke chapter 21, verse 10. Jesus said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences. What's he talking about? He's talking about the future. He's talking uh, uh, for, for every, really, every generation they're going to face tribulation, but it seems like he's talking to the terminal generation here. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, declaring, or delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, this all happens in the book of Acts, doesn't it? They get beaten, taken before kings and counselors and uh, constantly. I mean, Paul's just constantly getting the tar beat out of him. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. Now, that doesn't mean you don't study for a Bible study. That means that when you get ripped out of the house at 2 in the morning in your underwear, that God's going to give you the words that you need to say. Okay? I've had people say, I don't need to study for the Bible study because Jesus said not to. I'm like, you're dumb. Okay. <laughs> in, in a loving way, of course. Um, <laughs> For I will give you a month or a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or conjure. Now tune in here. You will be delivered up even by parents. Your parents are going to betray you. And brothers, they're going to betray you. Your relatives, your great aunt Edna is going to betray you. And friends. And some of you, listen, don't lose me. Some of you will even be put to what? Death. Okay. Whew. Man, that's pretty intense, Jesus. But then look what he says next. But don't worry. You'll be hated by, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. You're going to die. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get betrayed by your parents, by your friends, by your relatives. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to kill you. But not a single hair on your head is going to be singed. What does that mean? Did he just contradict himself? What do you think? Is Jesus, Jesus contradicting himself here? I don't think so. Here's what I think. I think that we are to learn from this text and from Jesus' words here that true preservation is more than avoiding bodily destruction. 
True preservation is more than avoiding bodily destruction. Here's the reality. For the believer, earthly, and we have to believe this, okay? We have to believe this. For the believer, earthly death simply kicks off eternal life. Do you you realize that? Somebody walks up to you right now and takes your life. Your true life begins. Do we, I mean, do we really believe that? That's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying they're going to beat you up. They're going to cast you out. They're going to mock you. They're going to murder you. And not a hair on your true head will perish. Because this life is not your true eternal life. Because what can they do to us? This is why Christians have been so persecuted and have done so much and been willing to be persecuted by so much and have never I've always been willing to trust Jesus because our true life is hidden with Christ. That's what, what's getting, what it's getting at here. So, okay, number one, write it down. First reason that we go through trials or the first reason that God allows um, heat in our life. Number one, God uses heat to show us that he will always be there to save us. So God is delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not so that they won't ever get hurt and not so that they won't eventually die. You know, these guys still died. You know, Lazarus still died. He, I mean, think about it. He died and then he had to die again. So Jesus didn't resurrect Lazarus. He resuscitated Lazarus. There's a difference. There's a difference in getting your new body and just getting, being brought back to life. There's a difference. And the same thing is true here. He saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they still had to die eventually because the, the portal into God's new eternal life is death. That's the reality, unless we get raptured. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's the, but the good news is God is, is trying to give us data points so that we trust him. He's, he's trying to show us, hey, look, I saved you before. I'm going to save you again. So what's God doing here for the nation of Israel in this? He's giving a parable for the exiled Israelites to look and go, oh, God saved these three, he can save us. God preserved these three in the fire, he can save us. And we're supposed to read the thing the same way. God preserved these guys, he can preserve us. Now that doesn't mean we won't suffer, it doesn't mean we won't be persecuted, it doesn't mean we won't die, but it means we will never perish. We will never die the second death. In fact, our death is just the beginning of true eternal life. The second thing we're supposed to see, I think the second thing the narrator really wants us to see in this is that there's, um, th- that only one thing was burned in the fire. Did you see that? What was it? The ropes. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think the author listed all the clothes and said none of the clothes was singed, like not even a little, not even a little bit of a singe, but the ropes were burned away. What is that meant to teach us? I think it me- it's meant to teach us this, if you want to write it down. Number two, God uses heat to refine faith, burning bonds to give freedom. Have you guys found that to be true in life? The stuff that we hate to go through oftentimes ends up being the pathway to true freedom. What do I mean by that? How exactly is that true? Well, here's an example. Um, Sometimes struggles, tribulation, they burn away the things that we are holding onto and would never have let go of on ourselves. Right? You get caught doing something, something comes out, Something gets hard, it exposes what you really love and what you should love more. 
Oftentimes, trials and struggle have this way of purifying and, and burning away things that we would never let go of. And so I think we're meant to see here that when, when we get thrown into the fire, God is preserving us and he's going to use that to free us. It's really good news. Because you're probably going through something hard right now. And the last thing that is helpful when you think about that is that this is pointless. But it's not pointless. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This, this passage just marries so well with our text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter said, blessed be the God. By the way, this book was written to Christians being persecuted. Keep that in mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, meaning it's never going into the furnace, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, here's why we go through trials. Peter's going to unpack it for us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by what? Fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's Peter's saying here, he's saying that the reason that God allows us to go into the heat is because God is refining us. Not because God is trying to burn us, not because God's trying to destroy us. God is trying to forge us. He's trying to cause the impurities to bubble up to the surface so that he can scrape them off the top. That's what heat in the hands of the master does. Not a mindless fire that destroys indiscriminately, but heat intentionally applied for particular reasons for the purpose of purifying what? Purifying our faith and our worship so that at the end of all things it will be revealed and we'll end up looking like Christ. That's what he's saying here. The heat exposes the quality not of the craft. Guys, really listen to me here. The heat exposes not the quality of the craft, but what? The craftsmanship. What, do our heat, what is the heat we go through? What, is it, what does it give glory to? Not us. It gives glory to the one that created the faith within us. It gives glory to the one who's been working on us, the workmanship of God. That's the whole point of what Peter's saying here, that your trials draw attention to God's workmanship in your life and his craftsmanship in your life. It's really good news. Now, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you the discussion questions as we go so you can be thinking about them. That way you don't feel like you have to come up with something really quick. The first discussion question we're gonna talk about at the end is how has God used heat in your life to give you freedom? Be thinking about that. Okay, the third thing that we're supposed to see in the text here is that we are meant to see who is seeing all of this happen. You notice how specific the author was, I tried, to, I tried to get you to see it as we were reading through it, but you see how specific the author was and how he's trying to get us to see all the people that saw this happen. This was a public thing. It was very public. The reason is, number three, if you write it down, the reason is God uses heat to expose his work within us to the watching world. See, God's not just interested in reassuring the faith of his people. He's interested in calling the Gentiles into his love. 
He's interested in exposing his goodness and his love to Nebuchadnezzar and to all those in Babylon. This isn't just about God's people. It's about God's witness to those that are not yet God's people. Do you see that? He wants Nebuchadnezzar to see this. It's very important. So the, the other discussion question we're going to talk about, and you can start thinking about this, is has your faith ever been strengthened because you saw the way another believer endured hardship? It's incredibly encouraging when we see Christians suffer well. The fourth thing we're supposed to see here is that we, we're meant to see that there's not three in the fire. What is there? There's four. The point is that these men are not alone. These men are not alone. You want to write it down, number four. God uses heat to show that he is with us in the fire. God's trying to, he's trying to communicate something to Israel uh, at the time that this was written. He's also trying to communicate something to us. What he's trying to communicate to Israel at the time of this is, hey, guys, I know I kicked you out of your land, but I haven't left you. You read the book of Ezekiel, you see a really amazing thing happen. Ezekiel has a vision. He sees the Spirit of God leave the temple, which is where? In Jerusalem. And where does the Spirit of God end up in the book of Ezekiel? On the rivers, I think it's the river, uh, Euphrates. It, it ends up in Babylon. The spirit of, the God, the spirit of God shows up in Babylon. What's that supposed to tell Ezekiel, who was, by the way, lived at the same time as Daniel? It's, it's supposed to tell the Israelites that God went with them. God's the God who comes with. He comes with you. That's why, that's why God told Israel to make a box and carry it around. It's not because God lives in a box. Did you know that? It's because he wanted them to get this idea that God is mobile. They don't have to have some super sacred special spot. God comes with them. He's the God that enters into their tribulation and struggle. And in the same way, the reason that Nebuchadnezzar and the other people look into the fire and they don't see three, they see four, is because God wants to make one thing abundantly clear, that he's not outside the fire, he's inside the fire. Now, it might be an angel or it might be the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. The point is God is in the fire. I think it's Jesus. I, I straight up think it's Jesus in the fire. Point is, is that he comes into our suffering. He comes into the fire with us. How has he done that? You might say, well, let's think about this. God could have saved this world seemingly from heaven. Could he? Well, no, I don't think he could have. God chose to save in the only way that he could save, and that was to come into this world, in the incarnation. God chose to come into humanity to be fully God and truly man in order to die a human death, in order to pay a human sin debt and redeem a humanity. God did not stay in heaven. He came out of heaven and came into the furnace with us. And a lot of people constantly question the love of God. How could a good God allow this? How could a good God allow that? A good God would have stayed in heaven, or a God that wasn't good would have stayed in heaven. A good God did what he did. He came out of heaven and stepped into the furnace of a fallen world and lived all of the pain and all of the discomforts and all of the insecurities of a human life for 33 years so that he could relate with you as the perfect high priest. He gave you his perfect credit score. He took your filthy life. He's our great high priest. He came into the fire. And that's not the only way he came into the fire. He sent his literal presence, his literal spirit to live inside of us so that we are not alone in the fire. You see that? See, this was good news for the exiles and it's good news for us in the new covenant. 
Because what it teaches us is the same thing that's always been true, that God goes with us. He comes with us and he fights for us. That's why Jesus said, right before he was ready to leave and go to the right hand of the Father, he said, I will be with you, even unto the end of the age. He's talking about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that is here, present, right now. His presence is with us. It's good news. So the third discussion question when we get there is, what time can you recall when God was noticeably present in your trouble? How did he minister to you? How did you know he was there? Now let's close with, uh, or at least five points at least, and we'll finish the text. There's another thing we're meant to see here, and I think that is, the point of this is not the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now here's where I want you to think with me. Oftentimes we read Old Testament texts like these and we go, okay, I get it. The point is I need to be like these guys. Yeah. That's part of the point. What's the real point here? The point is that these three guys remind us of one who was more faithful than these guys. These three guys and their willingness to not bow the knee to the system of this world reminds us of a more faithful servant who came and was not willing to bow his knee to the system of this world, even though Satan tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days. Just turn that rock into bread. Just get up on the tower and jump off. Make your messianic debut. Come on, you can do it. Jesus resisted. He was the more faithful servant. This isn't meant to to inspire us that if we're going to be thrown into a furnace that we should hold fast. Yes, in one sense, it's meant to get our eyes on the one that chose to walk into the furnace of God's wrath that was meant to be poured out on the world so that we didn't have to take it. This is meant to draw our attention to the greater faithful one, the one who went to the furnace so we do not have to. Of course, I'm talking about Christ. If Jesus had never come, then all God really did was delay eternal death for these guys. But because Jesus chose to go into the furnace of the cross and give us his righteousness, us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all faith racers, all believers of all time now have entrance into God's eternal kingdom. The good news is that a more faithful servant has come to take down a more wicked kingdom to be more faithful, to take on the worse furnace. Amen? And this is why he has such solidarity with us in our suffering. This is why when we are persecuted or when we struggle or when we doubt or when we are, 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 are having a hard time, Jesus has this great connection to us because he too has drank from this cup to a degree that we'll never understand. Verse 28, let's finish it out. Nebuchadnezzar, did I give you the number five? You guys, I'm so sorry. God uses heat to remind us who took the true heat for us. I'm so bad at following my own outlines. Okay. God uses heat to remind us of who took the true heat for us. Let's finish the text. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. You see the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar beginning to become more tuned in to the reality of the true God. He's beginning to see that the God of these three men and of Daniel is not just superior in power, he's superior in nature. He's a good God. Not a God who has to be bought or earned like the gods of the pagans, 
but a God who is simply loving and good and kind and honors the faith of his people. He sees, he's getting a lesson that the greatest, listen, this is important, the greatest motivator in the world is not fear or power. What is it? It's the love of God. You see, one day, we're gonna populate a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be this great binding agent that will tie all of humanity together forever. And it's not fear. And it's not power. It's worship. It's thankfulness for the love of God. We're gonna be there because we wanna be there. These guys took Nebuchadnezzar to school. And they said, you think your power is the most influential thing? God's love is more influential than your power. These guys acted not out of fear of God, but out of love for God because God first loved them. It's the most powerful motivator in the universe. You want to stand faithful for God? Tune into his love for you. Make that the center of your gravity. Fear and power are just not enough. I love that Nebuchadnezzar, even a non-believer here, can spot the authentic faith of these three men. 29, therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, language, now this is so funny, his last decree was, bow down to me or you're toast, right? Here's his new decree. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Neb, just calm down, man. You don't always have to try to kill everybody. <laughs> this guy's like, if you don't bow down to this, I'm gonna tear your limbs off and burn your house. And he's like, oh, if you don't let them worship their God, I'm gonna tear your limbs off and burn your house. Like, dude, just stop burning. Stop tearing, okay? Calm down. Guy needed, like, he needed some breakfast. Too much, too much coffee. There's 30. And then the king promoted Shadrach. Now, this is important. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Why is that significant? It's significant because what God did here is he providentially, again, made an environment where all of these waves of exiles that were to come had the freedom and security of religious liberty in Babylon for 70 years. You ever think about that? There's probably going to come a time where you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Right now is not really that time, and I don't think you need to feel bad about that. I think you need to go, thank you, God. I, I think God, actually, when you, when you look at the story of the exile, God told the Israelites, go to Babylon, and I'm going to bless you there. And I want you to bless Babylon. Okay? Now, that, that wasn't an, an eternal promise. That was for a time. Right now, we're living in a time where we're not necessarily getting shot for our faith. That, that probably will change. But I think we should just simply say, thank you, Lord, because you actually were the one that created this ecosystem we live in that has some religious freedom. Thank you. Thank you for that, God. You think, you think God is not aware of how geopolitical things affect us? You think he doesn't care about it? You think he's not involved in that? You think he doesn't know what's going on in the Middle East right now? You think he's not aware of whether Hezbollah is gonna you know, invade in the north or, or whether Iran's pulling the street? You don't think he, he knows what he's doing? You don't think that, that he's aware of the Christians who are in Israel and the Christians who are in Palestine? You know there's Christians in Palestine? I met some of them. Just remember that. There's Christians. God's aware of them. He's gonna preserve them. We should pray for him. So let me conclude. Why does God allow these things to happen to us? Just to remind you, he, let me just give you the notes I already gave you. God uses heat to show us that he will always be there to save us. God uses heat to refine us. God uses heat to expose his work in us. God uses heat to show he is with us. And God uses heat to remind us who took the true heat for us.
Amen? Amen. Uh, I don't have time for my advice column, so we're just going to end, and I'm going to turn you guys loose to do some discussion. Father, thank you so much for Daniel chapter 3. So encouraging to see, God, how you preserve your people. And God, I pray right now as we, we spend just a few minutes having some conversation with people around us. God, I know that's, this is very um, stressful for some people. I pray, God, that right now you would just remind us of the value that is in a conversation. God, you would remind us right now that, that, that to be the church, we need to do more than just listen to sermons. We need to interact with one another, listen to one another, encourage one another. And God, maybe you would have a word to speak to someone in a circle this morning, Father. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present in our time together, that this wouldn't be too offsetting for anybody that's new. Lord, that this would just be something we will do enjoy, Father. In Jesus' name.